Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 154, The NASA Worm. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, even artists, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. The worm is back! Now, before you start practicing your dance moves, I'm talking about the NASA Worm logo. You'd recognize it if you saw it. It's that retro-looking logo where N-A-S-A is spelled out in red. We call that one the worm, and the blue one is called the meatball, at least informally. In the official NASA style guide, the meatball is called the insignia, and the worm is called the logotype. The worm has been retired for almost 30 years, and any official NASA product in that time has been branded with just the meatball. But just prior to the launch of NASA's SpaceX Demo-2 mission in May 2020, NASA brought back the use of the worm, and it's now being used for select missions and products. The worm design is super famous, and even though it's been retired, it's still very much part of pop culture. With a new era of human spaceflight upon us, the worm is making a comeback. So to describe this logotype and its history is the very man who designed it, Richard Daney. It was he and his firm, Daney and Blackburn, that was selected for NASA's rebranding in the mid-70s. Richard is an extremely experienced and award-winning graphic designer, and on this podcast, he describes the journey from the worm's creation to now, and what it means for NASA's future now that it's back. So here we go. The NASA Worm Logotype with Richard Daney. Enjoy. Minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light circuit for the red. There she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. Richard Daney, thank you so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast today. Hey, Gary. It's great to be with you, and thanks for the invitation. What an honor to be talking to you, sir. Uh, the person who invented such an iconic logo. I want to take it from really um, the very beginning, uh, really just a brief, I guess, a summary of your biography up to the time that you started working with NASA, just to understand who you are and where you come from. Mm-hmm. Okay, sounds fine. Well, I have an unusual background, so let me very briefly give you uh, some of that history. I was born on a farm in Oklahoma, and uh, believe it or not, in 1934. Well, that's a significant date because, you know, it's the middle of the Great Depression. And uh, the overlay, which was quite fierce, was uh, Dust Bowl, Oklahoma. And and frankly, Gary, I don't recommend that (laughs) as a start. You know what I mean? But uh, on the other hand, it was a great beginning because uh, everything went uh, up from there, you know, upwards. Mm-hmm. So I was the youngest of four children, and uh, I was a good student and very involved in music. I played in all the bands and even in a jazz quartet in high school, which is great fun. So we worked high school events and dances. Uh, we had no art, uh, but I drew constantly. So, uh, you know, this, this, this was an early warning of what I was going to do with my life, I think. And then we went on to college. Um, uh, of course, I attended Oklahoma State University. Uh, started in engineering, which was uh, <clears throat> something my folks wanted me to do <laughs> um, at OU. I, I I didn't like it, although I think it's played a great role in my career, frankly. So I don't feel it was wasted time. I switched to art because no design was offered at Oklahoma State. Um, I also had a jazz quartet in college, and um, I came within, literally within a whisker of pursuing music as a career. Um, I'm awfully glad that I chose design. Um, but I did know that OSU was not proper uh, background, you know, it wasn't good enough. So one of my professors helped me uh, get located at UCLA grad school, so immediately on my graduation, uh, I drove straight out to UCLA and, and started specializing in design. Thank God, because it all worked. So it was great. And uh, then the other caveat to this is I began my freelance career in Dallas, uh, and, I, and my entire six-decade career has been independent practice. I'm very proud of that. So uh, then on to New York in, in 1963. And that's when we really got involved in some of the really big stuff. Like what? What were some of the first things that you started tackling? Well, we did uh, 
life before NASA. It was, um, uh, you know, I was freelancing, so I started with anything I could get, book jackets and, and, and peripheral stuff like that. However, um, we uh, very quickly got into corporate work and uh, and worked with uh, people like uh, U.S. Information Agency, and they're, they're in Washington, and General Dynamics, uh, which kind of got me into this world of aerospace, so to speak. Hmm. Ford Foundation, Time Incorporated, worked for Westinghouse, and, you know, some really good names. So at that time, the field was wide open, um, and it, for someone like me to start freelance in New York was almost unheard of. Or you wouldn't do it today, let me say that, Gary. It just would be impossible. But that was sort of the background, um, you know, and uh, it, it all happened pretty fast. I'm not to say it wasn't hard work, but it was, a, it was great. It was a lot of fun, too. So, I mean, it sounds like you got into the world of aerospace even early on in your career, but I'm I'm kind of curious. You said you were you were drawing back in back in Oklahoma. What were those things that you were drawing? What were you interested in putting on uh That's pretty interesting. That's a great question actually. I was drawing mostly cars. Huh. Uh, and I could have gone in that direction too, automotive design. Uh, of course, I drew planes too, and 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 athletes. It was the era of Bud Wilkinson at Oklahoma University, and so you know, great uh, uh, football teams, and I draw all the athletes. But I think I just kept returning to cars, and uh, I carved them too out of wood, you know, and it's real modern designs that people really thought were very ambitious and. Uh, <laughs> great stuff. But I mean, I think it was all pointed in this direction, you know. It wasn't. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't exactly peripheral. It was really good. Very much so. See, see, I could see maybe about that push for, from your parents to go into engineering, but you said that just didn't work for you. It, it was you were more passionate about art. What was it? What was it about art, or maybe that a lack thereof within engineering, that made you want to pursue the path that you did? Well, you know, in college, and of course, you you meet all the other students and. And you become acquainted with what's being uh, offered. And but I always had the music and art. That was really my thrust from time I was a little boy. Um, and as I say, I carved stuff constantly. I was always drawing. So in college, I became aware through other students what they were doing, and then I just thought they were having a lot better time than I was. And I did have quite a bit of ability. I could paint. Uh, so I started looking into that program, and I actually switched in my sophomore year. Mm. And I was very happy for the rest of the the college experience, but but I still wasn't meant to be an engineer. And what's fascinating about that is, uh, and we'll get into this later, but I have worked with engineers and scientists a great deal of my career. It wasn't just NASA. And uh, so, uh, you know, it all fits. I think when you, you have that orientation, or I could have done that, it's a platform kind of thing, you know? And it's a good place to start from, a good launch pad, if you will. Hmm. Very nice. Um, I want to skip ahead to, to NASA. Um, the Kind of the base of, of this is, is this logo, but to sort of give a little bit of background for our listeners, we're talking mm-hmm. about two logos that are the, I guess, identifiers of NASA. Can you describe what they are and what they look like? Yeah, there were there were two, there were two marks for the agency. Uh, there was only one one then, and it was called the meatball, uh, affectionately called the meatball. And uh, it was a blue sphere with a kind of a chevron shape in it, a wedge shape, mm. with uh, uh, lips around it and a sprinkling of stars in the middle. So it's very allegorical, uh, sort of a storytelling symbol. Uh, when we came in with the design, when we saw the cross-section of, of, uh, of work being done by all the centers, uh, we, we went the other way and decided we needed something very, very simple that could anchor the whole program. But uh, So the worm, which is also an affectionate term now, <laughs> the logotype, uh, is a warm red uh, logo with custom letters, which, of course, are one-stroke letters uh, suggesting... Uh, technology, propulsion, lift, and our intention was to try to suggest the future without hyping it, you know, and uh, make it very, very useful, and that's the way that worked out. Hmm. So 
let's uh, let's dive a little bit into the history here. Um, sure. There 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 was a transition point. You know, from if you we talked a lot on this podcast about just the Apollo missions, and if you were to watch any of those missions, that that meatball that you're discussing, that was the logo. That was the one that everyone was tied to. Exactly. But around, yeah. uh, I think, believe it was 1974 was the time that you started coming in, and and they were looking for a redesign. Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, the the uh, Apollo program, which by the way, I was glued to the set all the time. So <laughs> since I'm a little boy, I love flight. And um, and then, of course, space uh, exploration just hooked me completely. So I did follow the Apollo program and was very involved before we got the call, so to speak. Um, but for the agency, um, you know, they, they were no easy headlines after Apollo. There was no publicity coming automatically. And it was a very quiet time for the agency, and I think they were very nervous uh, anxiously awaiting, really, the shuttle program to kick in. And I can understand it because it, uh, it had been so easy with the Walter Cronkites of the world, you know, uh, hyping it, making it happen. Uh, but, but this was very quiet. I think it's one of the reasons that um, this program was initiated was to fill that void. But it really wasn't designer's idea. It was the National Endowment of the Arts. They created um, the NEA short. Uh, they created uh, a program called Federal Design Improvement Program, and they felt that federal graphics were very weak and behind, and, and of course that's true. So they took it upon themselves to uh, uh, do uh, research missions on every agency and collect uh, you know, archival data and, and everything that the agencies were doing, and they evaluated it and decided whether the agency should have a redesign or not. And one of the very first ones they they wanted to uh, attack was uh, NASA, and the, and the reason was it was such such a high profile, and so they wanted to. They thought if they could get an early victory with uh, NASA, then ever all the other agencies would follow. And of course, that's that's exactly what happened. Hmm. So you know that was that was a big deal then. This you, this was very forward leaning at the time. So how did how did Dane and Blackburn get selected? Well, uh, Danny, we sorry. were only formed the, the fall before we got the call, and, and so that would have been in 1973. Danny and Blackburn was um, less than a year old when mm. we got the RFP, but my partner, uh, Bruce Blackburn, had been with Shermarf and Guys, my rather famous firm, and he had recently designed the, the U.S. Bicentennial symbol while he was there, and uh NEA was very, very fond of that mark, and, and uh, I think to this day, I believe that was the main reason that we made the short list. Mm. And it's interesting, Gary, that, that at that time, because it's also new, they only invited about seven or eight firms. Uh, down the road, as, I mean, we did a number of other programs, uh, it just kept growing geographically, I mean, um, geometrically, so, uh, you know, each time they almost doubled the number of candidates they brought in to bid on the jobs. But uh, we were, uh, as I say, so we were called very early on, and I think Bicentennial was the key. Wonderful. Now, now when they did bring you on, I'm sure they had some visions of, of what they wanted. What were those key elements they wanted? You already mentioned a few. They wanted it future. They wanted it uh, something about lift. Um, what were those key elements they wanted for this new, for this new design? Well, it's interesting because I don't know that NASA, um, and I think they were fairly typical of those early agencies. I don't know that they felt they they needed a redesign, particularly <laughs> though they knew they knew they were in a bit of trouble. They they certainly needed more publicity and a, a symbolic uh, kind of a, a hype of some kind. And uh, so, um, you know, what what what. NEA wanted them after they looked at their uh, their collateral archival work. They were shocked, as we were. We saw it, and we couldn't believe it's coming out of the space agency. What had happened, though, is I mean, you know, the centers were still independent. They, yes, they were part of NASA, but they behaved pretty much on their own. They they really weren't happy with anything that came out of Washington at that time. And it's funny because to this very day, I know the centers are very competitive, and I get that. I, I think it's a good thing, probably. 
but it was everything from funding on, you know, and focus. They just they all think they're wonderful, and I think they are too. So the the net of that is that um, the work was extremely uh, disparate and messy. Uh, it was low standard, and the reason was they didn't have a single graphic designer on staff of any of the centers. Maybe JPL, which did exceptional work compared to the other centers. So it's a wild west of graphics, and uh, you know, anything goes. And uh, so I think headquarters kind of got religion in a hurry and realized that they had to pull all this together, that they couldn't have oh, 10 or 11 centers looking like, uh, you know, disparate and, and uh, having their own family style. So our, our job was really to pull it all together, as I like to say, one NASA, one agency. Uh, that was the mission. It went beyond aesthetics. It was really the goal of the whole organization to to try to meld them from the old NACA days, you know, into a, one NASA. And that was a pretty big charge, actually. And it, it can't be done just with graphics, but it can help. And that's what we were uh, challenged to do. Now, now, of course, you started with that work, and you already mentioned some of the values that you wanted in this this new uh, logo, uh, simplicity was one of them. I know. I know the one of the challenges with the meatball itself was there was problems reproducing it and putting it onto things. Uh, having this simpler logo made it made it a little easier to put on things. Is that right? That's absolutely true. Of course, the GPO. Uh, I can say this now because they did very substandard work at that time. Mm. And, and and the meatball didn't help because it was very complicated. It was in multicolors, and uh, you know, it it sometimes it reproduced like a thumbprint. You know, it just it, it couldn't be done. So, um, and I should quickly add that I'm told I don't have personal experience that GPO does much better work today. Also, the original meatball was a little more complicated than it is today. So it had more going on in it, and it made it even harder to reproduce. Mm. So uh, our we settled on, it took a month of honing our uh, logotype, uh, making it more contemporary and to anchor the program. Um, so it could be used across the board in all mediums, and, and sort of part of our presentation was to show it on uh, publications, forms, signing, vehicles, aircraft, shuttle, you know, even exotic spacecraft. Uh, and that and that standards manual. Well, actually, the presentation was in uh, fall of '74. Uh, manual came out in 1975. Um, but that that was what we were trying to do was to to create something that was would last a long, long time and uh, would anchor this, this all this disparate work. Uh, it wasn't an easy task, but it was exciting because this is just super agency which um, don't get me started. I'm just as excited about it today as it was back then. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, this is curious. You talk about the, uh, the, the, the stakes here uh, about, about this logo, but as I understand it, you presented one solution when you actually designed this. Is that right? <laughs> That's true. And, and, that, and that was very controversial. At the time, and uh, and everybody would agree that it would be controversial today. In fact, most design firms present multiples. We still kind of uh, adhere to the idea that there is a best solution, and we show that first. And more often than not, the client says yes. Uh, but that was very risky. What we did do that was different from, wasn't required in our contract at all. We did about 25 demonstrations at great time and expense, showing it, uh, what it would look like on everything, you know, every two-dimensional, every three-dimensional item that I just mentioned, the signing vehicles, aircraft, shuttle, you know. it. And we, we played it out against uh, this backdrop to, to make it a true, what I call, CAP-P program. Uh, prior to that, you know, the meatball had been kind of like an ornamental uh, stamp, you know, I mean, it, it was just applied to by subcontractors, not just by NASA, of course, to everything that moved, you stick it on. <laughs> so what we needed was, um, uh, you know, a family program 
that would bring it all together and uh, make it work. We even used it as a STEM word. I mean, you're probably aware of that, like NASA News or NASA uh, Information. Mm-hmm. And and it really did extend itself beautifully. And um, this is this is what happened. Um, and you know, that was the difference in the presentation. I think the logo itself was very controversial to the group we, that we presented to. But when we started trotting out the demonstrations, and you could just see the difference in the receptance in the room, you know, it was just very emotional uh, because it's the first time they'd really seen what it could be, how expansive the program could be, and how cohesive, you know, it was all all one agency. That part of the story really is interesting, the the reaction to this. I'm sure you, you have folks that have been there from the Apollo era that maybe were in love with this with the meatball and, and did not want to change. There was a little bit of uh, a little bit of pushback there. And I know specifically two names that uh, um, come to mind or that I that I found, James Fletcher and George Lowe had opinions of their own on just, just the color scheme and, and all kinds of things. It was not a you know it was not a universally accepted thing. No, and the session was certainly among the most interesting I've ever experienced, and the stakes were extremely high. Um, I think that both of them being scientists, as probably today would be the case, uh, they view things through that lens rather than through an art or aesthetic lens. Hmm. Um, but, but, you know, so there was a lot of controversy under Dr. Fletcher, and I say this in all generosity because because he's a great guy, and we we did wonderful work with him over the years. Um, just didn't get it, and I know when he when he saw the uh, mark, and they came back, and Dr. Lowe was talking to me, and he said, "Well, what do you think?" And he said, "Well, I think something is missing here." And, and uh, you know, Dr. Lowe says, "What is that?" And he said, "Well, there are no cross strokes in the A's." And, uh, and Dr. Lowe said, "Well." Yes. So what's wrong? He said, well, I don't feel we're getting our money's worth. And, you know, the the fact is that that's one view of it. It was pretty Mm -hmm. Spartan rendering, you know. And uh, now today you see this copied over and over and over. Uh, In my lectures, I do a thing on copycat culture. You know, thousands of marks are out there that imitate this. But uh, so that was one thing. The other thing was this warm red that we used, which... Uh, I think Dr. Lowe thought, thought he, he commented that he thought blue would be more appropriate because space was blue, and then he was corrected by Dr. Lowe saying, no, space is black. Mm. Uh, so there were a lot of things that we knew that they'd want blue. In fact, all of our early work was based on that color scheme, you know, that palette. But we thought that the warm red was indicative of a real can-do agency, and uh, certainly NASA was that. And uh, so, uh, it, but but in the end, we prevailed, and they they got the logic of it here again, sort of an engineering orientation, logic rather than just a gut, you know, aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, you know, it, it it did work, and we got the go ahead to do the program. Well, wonderful. Tell uh, tell me about that. Now I know, like you know, you talked about already. You alluded to many elements of how the uh, logotype would actually appear on certain things and this beautiful thing called a style guide. Uh, so tell me about that process. Well, the, the um, programs like this were done in the, uh, in the corporate world, but nothing really in the institutional world and certainly nothing of this scale or magnitude. So uh, we, were, we were adopting things that were very commonplace in uh, in the corporate world, and that was to create a, a document style manual that would uh, be used by just everybody, all staffers, you know, every, all the specialists, and certainly inside and out the agency. And NASA was unique in that it had, you know, tons of subcontractors who were very important partners, and uh, they were kind of used to doing whatever they wanted too. So we had to create a manual that was. <clears throat> was pretty um, not only well-defined, but it was fairly strict in the sense that, uh, you know, that we had do's and don'ts, and uh, we're trying to prevent mistakes being made early on by, as they say, both NASA and their contractors. Um, 
so, but we also decided that we wanted to do a tutorial, and that's what made it a fairly substantial manual and a little longer than most at the time. Hmm. Where we did, we started with some publication design grids and just trotted them out. We found out that without designers, they're going to need some fundamental help. That turned out to be very, very a good decision because the, the uh, publications improved very quickly. Uh, but in in this manual, then there are specialty sections on everything that I mentioned, from signing to uh, uh, you know aircraft to uh, we even did the shuttle in great detail and uh, some of the spacecraft that were being just developed at the time, you know and um, we were, we were able to mark those things and apply it. So it's considered, even at this day, perhaps the most thorough manual and uh, most understandable manual. I did a podcast uh, just last week with a, a guy. He said, I read this thing frontwards and backwards about three times. He's, he was an engineer. <laughs> and he said, I don't think I've ever found anything so easy to understand uh, also, with guidance. Now, today, we wouldn't put that much guidance into a manual because the, our world is more sophisticated. Mm-hmm. But at that time, it was something we needed to do, and it was very, very helpful, I think. So tell me about some of those elements. You're talking to a guy who, unfortunately, did not read it forwards and backwards three times. <laughs> so uh, tell me about some of those things. What were What were these elements that were very helpful to others? Well... The most extreme might be that we we spent almost two years, not full time, but working off and on on business forms because we had to work with GPO and like that. So really about structuring with the whatever the printing techniques were at those times, typesetting um, and 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 detailing it. Not only that, simplifying it. We were able to take forms across NASA, which were just an enormous grouping and simplify them into much fewer forms, thereby saving money. And the language, which some people in insurance were simplifying their documents at that time, that's what we did. And so it wasn't really a design issue. It was it was a detail and engineering issue. And uh, we were able to get those down in much shorter, crisper forms and save a great deal of money on that, which is never talked about much, but I mm. think it's important for government. On the other hand, if you're talking about vehicles, uh, the vehicles on every every center were different at that time. So they were able, you know, a lot of them were just saying the name of the center, but there was no uh, connection to the the larger entity of the NASA headquarters. So we, we signed out, I mean, we uh, did plans for every type of vehicle, ground vehicle that they had, as well as every aircraft. Sometimes we had to go out and measure the aircraft and, and really go into that level of detail so that the entire fleet was uh, had one look. It was really quite beautiful. Uh, of course, the shuttle went through many machinations, and uh, that was a feature in the book. Uh, and in the end, uh, the, the, the scientists, the people who know how to make it fly, had a huge input, and we were very secondary because we weren't going to get in the way of success, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So uh, all this stuff was kind of back and forth and uh, with a lot of cooperation with the staff, and uh, it, was, it was really an interesting process. The manual itself was issued in '95, and I would say it was about half complete. And then over the next 10 years, we did. Uh, I was the external art director for those 10 years, or design director is the proper term. And uh, we added many supplements to it, and uh, it expanded out to about 90 pages or so. And then there were a lot of special projects, too, that had nothing to do with the manual. Uh, about eight years out, we did a publication called A Manager's Guide uh, to NASA Graphics, and it, it showed... Um, you know, the the various mediums we've been talking about here and uh, showed them in implementation or finished form to show that it was a mature program and uh, very much uh, in place. Hmm. Now, um, I understand the worm, uh, you know, we're talking about the, the sort of the mid-70s here for the rollout of that. It had 
a run of just about two decades. Can you tell me about that that uh, two decade span, and then uh, when Dan Golden comes in in the early nineties? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, uh, those were pretty smooth times, and as I say, we did. We ended up doing. I remember doing a poster series for high school students. Uh, once called uh, "Going to Work in Space," uh, and and the theme was there was it was what was going on at the agency at the time. Actually, there was a lot of pressure on us to the agency to show that the money was being well spent and that um, it wasn't being wasted on um, you know jet jockeys just flying around in, up there. So uh, we did quite a few things that were making this point about space technology for the benefit of man on Earth. Uh, and, uh, so, you know, so that was kind of a mood of the times. And uh, we, were, we were able to do that. Then, of course, and as a matter of fact, um, it's, it's not well known yet, but a new book is coming out uh, in about two months called The Worm. <laughs> and it, it is actually beautifully documents the entire and expansive programs over those two decades. It's going to be quite a book. Um, we, we, will, we will talk about, I'm sure, about the reissue of our manual, uh, but this is yet another book which, if the manual was just the guidelines, and that's so like, like uh, crazy, uh, this new book, done by the same people, uh, Jesse Reed and Hamish Smythe, uh, it's called the worm, and uh, it, it visually documents everything in place, all the air aircraft and shuttles. And it's, it's going to be a beautiful book, and I'm sure it will sell something great too. So there was a lot of success. It, it was so much so that, that it was quiet. I guess the 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 event you're referring to is Dan Golden in 1992. Mm. Uh, rescinding the program, it was a thunderbolt, really, because there'd been no build-up to it. Um, and in just one day, uh, uh, he did rescind the program in '92. And of course, we were, um, myself and my staff, were crushed uh, to say the least. Uh, but um, you know, it was a major event in in our professional world too. No one could quite believe it. This was so popular uh, around the world. Uh, I, I constantly furnished uh, stories and, and background visuals to uh, publishers and editors and and the like around the world. Uh, so it was very much entrenched, and uh, it was a blindside to say the least. And uh, uh, of course, it uh, changed everything. And uh, but I never lost interest in space exploration and continued to follow. The NASA exploits, uh, uh, you know, because it's it, to me, it's still the most, the greatest adventure uh, we've come up with, and not just adventure, but uh, pursuit. Uh, and uh, I still feel that way about it. But but that's something that uh, was just major, and not just for our firm, but for um, for the world of design, it was considered quite a radical thing, <laughs> a decision on his part. Yeah, you talked about how how this thing was so popular. I, I see it even today. This this logo is is everywhere. It's it's coexisting with other brands, and it's it's just part of a of a pop culture thing. Did you even see that early on uh, when you first roll it out? It wasn't as immediate, certainly in the in the agency as you suggested. The old guard much preferred the uh, the meatball, and the younger staffers uh, were very very fond of this program. Um, those same individuals have grown up to be flight directors now, so that's really uh, the story, and I think that's uh, kind of thrilling. But the popularity outside of NASA was even greater. It got tremendous uh, exposure due to these, uh, I mentioned Walter Cronkite, but really all the, all the networks were, were very quite fond of, and we worked with them. You know, they liked this. It came across. It was very telegenic. I mean, you know, it's just they put the logo up and they say that's it. You know, everybody knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so this was a, a wonderful thing, and they got free publicity, and it became more and more well known. And then around the world, it was so popular in Asia and uh, and in Europe, maybe even more so than America. Now today, in America, and you've probably seen this, 
whether it's the barrel or anything else, the young people take to it like ducks to water. You know, it's um, it's just extraordinary, and as you, it's really uh, pop pop culture. But when you realize that um, a motion picture like The Martian, they could have done anything they want, but what they did was take our our logo and make an alphabet, you know, so that you had a, an extension of it. As a, and there we are on Mars, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's actually going to happen in the future, so it's not exactly uh, fantasy. But it, but it really is something that happened very naturally, and uh, I I can't fully explain it myself. I we've always been interested in doing timeless work. That's the category of design. Uh, and and I think this is a very good example of it. You know, it's just uh, it seems to get better with age. Hmm. Yeah, talk talk about the the worm logo itself. We described it a little bit in the beginning, but um, but w- what do you think? You you talked about a timeless design, and and you were very particular about the simplicity and about the the way that it appeared on things. Um, I, I want to get a better sense, maybe, of just what makes a logo that maybe at first glance looks so simple. I'm sure you put a lot of work into it, but just just the thoughts around the worm logo that make it so popular and so captivating to so many. And Gary, I don't think that that's entirely predictable, you mm-hmm. know, but uh, we did, it rung the bell. And I think that um, what you have is something that survives. It's It's 46 years old now as we speak. And uh, you know it's a long time by uh, by standards of uh, contemporary communication or marketing or branding. Uh, most companies and, and and organizations have changed or modified or or screwed up, <laughs> whatever you might want to call it. But they've done it many times. You know, so you have generations of this thing. Uh, the fact that the charge here, I think to work across uh, 10, 11 agencies with such incredibly different focuses and, and uh, disciplines and all, uh, to try to pull that together, that's what drove us towards um, uh, the simplicity. Um, and Bruce Blackburn, my partner at the time, was, was very instrumental in working on this part of the, the program. And uh, that, that was a, what we were trying to do was to, keep honing it down to where it would be extremely versatile. may not look like it at first because it's so simple, but you could use it in so many ways, and um, and then it would hold up for a long, long time. Uh, we didn't have a time frame in mind for decades or five, you know, but, but I think it's um, the cursive nature of it and the fact of the way it flows – uh, it has a technology base to it. Uh, the the, the one-stroke letters seem to have been uh, machine-affected. I, I, I should mention this also. Everything, of course, is in uh, uh, this the pre-digital age, you know. So the entire manual, not just the logo, was all done uh, by hand. And, uh, you know, but it looks like there was science involved and, and engineering and uh, the fact that it's held up is just a testament to uh, this kind of timeless attitude, which is don't overdo it. Don't try to be too brazen. Don't don't be flashy. You know, make it work. And, of course, in that era, as I just referred to it, it was kind of a time when the agency was really bearing down on budgets and all. And uh, it sort of spoke to that. As a matter of fact, uh, I've been asked, you know, did did Nixon have anything to do? Well, he, it was under Nixon this all happened, the NEA program. But he didn't put any pressure on. The only pressure was coming at that time was that uh, they didn't know that, that sh- you know, shooting for the stars and, and uh, just flying around out there was a good approach or a good marketing ploy. They, they wanted it to be simple. So that it didn't look like uh, we're just fooling around out there, you know. Like mm. I mentioned, jet jockeys, you know, just having a great time. Uh, so that the whole idea of grounding it in in something reasonable was at work. Uh, but that doesn't explain why the kids love it so much today. I don't know. I see it uh, at 
in my book, my new book, uh, I've got a kitty car, you know. It's got it on the side. Uh, you see all the sweatshirts is everywhere proliferating, <laughs> especially in Europe. Um, it's kind of magical in a way because it is so simple. Um, but, you know, I <laughs> we met. Uh, I, I think you're aware we have this committee, at, at a working committee at NASA, trying to, to find out how to extend it beyond the DM2 uh, use from SpaceX. And uh, that's what we're looking at. at. At the same time, we're considering new kinds of merchandise because the demand, as the head of this at NASA said just yesterday, they, there's, she gets 20 calls a day <laughs> from people around the world that want to want to apply it to something, especially to apparel. <laughs> it's it's kind of like go figure. But anyway, it makes us proud. You you have to be. I mean, something something so captivating. And I want to and I want to kind of switch gears to that. Just just how this this uh, this logo that you that you came up with uh, in the seventies is 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 still very prominent today. And you described it so well. I wanted to focus first on this style guide um, uh, mm-hmm. because this was something that. I guess uh, fell off the shelves for a while, but there was a big effort to bring it back. People really wanted to get their hands on it. Yeah, and uh, so this young publishing firm decided that, that there was to give it a shot, you know. And uh, so they produced uh, reproduction, and this is only five years ago, I guess, uh, to try to reproduce the manual exactly as it was. And um, and then decided that they wanted to add a lot of really juicy material to it. So they produced page for page the entire manual, and then there were essays in it. I wrote an introduction to the book, and uh, and then we had that style. I mean that uh, manager's guide in the back, and some incidental things that had done film some of the TV things that I designed. And uh, you know it it it. And they put it on Kickstarter, so uh, taking a chance, and uh, this thing went through the roof. I mean, it, it, it garnered over nine thousand backers and a million dollars almost, Whew. and uh, it just was astounding because it, it broke records for a book. And this is a design manual. This isn't even a book. So uh, it showed that there's this tremendous appetite out there. Uh, for something, it really ended up being a landmark document, um, and and really had some gra- gravitas to it. So not only that, uh, then they brought it out and was tremendously successful. We're in our fifth—that's fifth printing now—and it just keeps going. <laughs> so uh, it's an exciting uh, story in and of itself. Now the same young guys that I refer to at order. They uh, they're bringing out the worm, and I can tell you it's going to be a knockout. Uh, so it, it, it's a book that shows all the applications over the two two decades that follow. So that we expect to be a winner also. So then you have back to back books, and they're designed uh, to be companions almost. So it's a very exciting for us. And Wonderful intro to that one too. <laughs> Now, Richard, you you alluded to this a little bit earlier. Uh, you know, taking the worm past Demo Two, the 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 SpaceX mission where we launched Bob and Doug here just recently. But this this is a big story. The worm is back. You know, we had this uh, we had this period of time uh, from where Dan Golden came in in the early '90s to even just now. We haven't been using the the NASA worm logo uh, uh, just until really 2020, and it's making a comeback. Can you tell me the story there? Yeah, the outside world has been keeping it alive, but, but not NASA, <laughs> which I understand. Uh, I think that the the first hint from uh, uh, SpaceX was they were wanted me to confirm the NASA red, which which I did that day, and I said, wait a minute, something's up here, and then they told me that uh, some really good things were coming. So I was pretty much on guard that that they were going to try to resurrect our, our image. And it was done with the agency's approval. I'm told maybe that that was a year and a half in the making. Hmm. So it wasn't a cavalier decision. Um, we instituted um, 
uh, committee at NASA, and I, I don't want to talk too openly about it, but it's an absolutely wonderful committee, a working committee, which is uh, has been charged to figure out how to use it past that original demonstration where, where they not only put it on the rocket, but of course on their Tesla cars and the walkway into the capsule. And it was used very, very beautifully and very extensively. So they set a standard that I think will be great for any other subcontractor, Boeing or otherwise, and for the agency itself. So this committee is looking at uh, other ways to use the worm to coexist with the meatball because it's not being uh, disposed of, as you you know. It's still the lead symbol. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we've been really quite successful. It's been an exciting venture. It's a great committee. And, uh, you know, we're loving it. And uh, we made a presentation yesterday. It, it'll go up to administrator very shortly. Uh, without giving the specifics of it, it's, it's, its purpose, of course, is to see how to make this work to expand the use of the worm so that the public can uh, not only become reacquainted with it, but uh, get on board. I Frankly, I think the results have been great that we've been working on, and there's a lot of applications to merchandise and everything. It's kind of thrilling. Uh, it, it's very strong and and powerful, and so I have high hopes for that. We'll see what happens. Um, but that's been our activity, and I can tell you uh, that, that um, you, you know, it's been exciting to be involved again because I really had about 30 years off there, and now I've been consulting with Nats again. So it's been a thrill. <laughs> well, uh, it sounded like, uh, you know, in the beginning, just, just that little hint of, uh, hey, what, what color red is this? Uh, yeah. your, your involvement was pretty minimal sort of in the beginning, but even before the roll-up. But it sounds like you're, you're pretty involved now. So you're, you're back. You're back with the worm. Well, well, we are, and I don't want to over-inflate it, <laughs> um, but I can tell you there's nothing like it. This has been a singular experience in my uh, six-decade career, I mean, and I mean that. It's, uh, it's so special, and uh, it, it's really an emotional subject for me. And uh, the whole idea of alliance again and with colleagues and very talented ones, it's just a tremendous fit. And uh, it's a great feeling to be back in the fold and to be be working, uh, you know, with 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 uh, colleagues and such such important work that I feel it's man as an endeavor. I put it at the top of the list. So uh, you know, to have that back, obviously, to have the worm uh, back on the forefront, it's just a it's a source of great pride. And I, and I don't mean that from an ego standpoint, but it's uh, it's. It's exhilarating, and uh, so you know we just, we'll take it as it comes, and do some some very good work, I think, and power this thing forward, and uh, maybe I'll get a lot of people happy. <laughs> yeah, I, I am. I'm telling you, I'm feeling your sense of pride right now, and and all, and I just feel you know proud for you. Just uh, it's got to be just a tremendous feeling, and I'm and I'm and I'm definitely feeling it from you, and I'm sure you have a sense just coming back into the fold. You know, taking it back to, to the 70s, the reason you were brought on is because the agency or, or maybe the National Endowment for the Arts or, or maybe some other factor was, was pushing to, to rebrand and to bring, um, to bring this agency, to bring other agencies into the future. Are you, are you getting that same sense now? Maybe it's, it's being brought back because this truly, is, this truly is the next era of human spaceflight. It is, and I, I, I think it's easy enough to comprehend. The reason the public is excited is manned spaceflight. You know, you, you lose the public when you just have robots and, and, and the like out there. But now we're back into manned spaceflight. The public is just going to go nuts for this again. And I think one of the rationales from maybe the administrator on was the worm symbolized uh, manned flight, manned spaceflight. And, um, you know, so it works that way. And it will conjure that up again. We had a big lag in between. But uh, I, th I think it will represent and represent it well. And, uh, you know, you can expect me to be a little prejudiced, but I try to be uh, objective about it, too. And I think that there's, there's a lot of good can come from it. And then I, I do know from the reactions I've had from younger personnel over the years 
that uh, that there'll be a lot of support, and uh, even even at uh, Johnson Space Center, that's why I'm so looking forward to coming down there. You know, and it's a it's a full circle thing, but um, I think it works for the agency. Well, Richard, I'm I'm sure there's a lot of uh, people listening to this podcast. I think. Um... I think we we definitely have a lot of fans of of uh, of space and maybe engineers, maybe scientists, but I'm sure there's some graphic designers out there, someone who wants to kind of follow in your footsteps. So, any words that you you may you want to have for them uh, that maybe want to follow in your in your path and do great things like you're doing? Well, I've always in, encouraged it, and I continue to do that. If anybody's interested, they have to. Pay attention to the space program. They have to, you know, read everything that comes out, find out what what the agency is doing, stay close to that, uh, and and understand the the core material. You know what what the agency is trying to do, and then apply it. The one thing I would would ask any future designers not to do, and that was don't try to morph these two symbols we have now into one. Uh, other people have already tried that, and it doesn't doesn't work. So if there's going to be another symbol way down the road, uh, uh, just don't do that. Don't don't mess up two uh, uh, marks which have a, quite a legacy and a history to them both. And um, maybe there is a third symbol that there's some place. But I, I do suggest that if our... If our particular logo is uh, 46 years old, it might be good for another four decades. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> well said, Richard. Richard Daney, thank you so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast. What a pleasure talking to you today. Wish you all the best. It's been great, Gary. I appreciate it very much. Hey, thanks for sticking around. Super interesting conversation we had with Richard Daney today, the guy who designed the NASA Worm logo. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you like this podcast, we have a lot of other episodes. You can listen to them in no particular order at nasa.gov slash podcasts. You can find us there, as well as the many other podcasts across all of NASA. You can talk to us on the NASA Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea for the show, and just make sure to mention it's for us at Houston We Have a Podcast. This episode was recorded on June 25th, 2020. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Greg Wiseman, Pat Ryan, Norm Moran, Belinda Polito, Jennifer Hernandez, Rocky Lind, and Chelsea Bayarte. Thanks again to Richard Daney for taking the time to come on the show. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on and tell us how we did. We'll be back next week.